Welcome to the UC Santa Cruz Arts Division News Podcast, where we take a look at the latest news and events happening throughout the Arts Division at UC Santa Cruz. I'm your host, Maureen Dixon-Harrison, the Assistant Director of Communications for the UC Santa Cruz Arts Division. In this episode, we're still dealing with the effects of the COVID-19 outbreak, as well as to adjusting to remote learning and communicating from a distance. Our interviews for this podcast were conducted on Zoom and via cell phone. The Social Documentation Film Program at UC Santa Cruz, better known as SOCDOC, is a -a one-of-a-kind program designed for future documentarians committed to social change and to documenting communities, cultures, issues, and individuals who are marginalized in our current landscape of representation. Every year, the SOCDOC MFA students usually present their thesis films in a major downtown movie theater, complete with a full house and many celebrations with friends and family. But of course, with the current COVID-19 outbreak, all that has changed. Their films are still outstanding, but they're now being shown exclusively online. This year's cohort is made up of nine filmmakers who have been working on their projects over the last two years. Their short documentaries share themes that look at immigration, identity, diversity, assimilation, and the struggle to preserve cultures in vastly changing societies. Six of the SOCDOC MFA students joined us to talk about their films, starting with Brian Myers, whose film is called Far From Cthulhu. Um, I'm a first-generation college student. I studied um, IT network engineering. So I had kind of this interest, so I was like, okay, maybe I'll look into like film schools. And, um, you know, California is obviously the, the center of a film in the U.S., so uh, kind of came out to California, was checking out some schools. In San Diego, I was contributing to this community uh, journalism project called Speak City Heights. Um, In the City Heights neighborhood in San Diego, it's um, kind of of along the the eastern edges of the city, and it's about over 40% foreign-born. To uh, the Korean community, I had heard uh, around 2006 uh, there was a wave of uh, refugees from Burma. What was happening uh, that was at least beneficial to me as uh, a filmmaker coming in, spending time with their community, is that they had a, a physical hub where a lot of activities were happening, and so I could spend time there uh, and meet, you know, just different people and to kind of understand what brings them together, what they want to do. And, you know, they're building like a a self-help community, basically, to to support one another. Because so many people, uh, like Korean refugees, are, um, you know, they're displaced to refugee camps. They're displaced uh, inside of Burma. uh, And and folks have resettled communities in Australia, uh, England, Canada. And so folks in the U.S. might not have, like, their family unit here um, and so they're kind of building a new family with with other refugees what I heard was happening was that 
the elders in the neighborhood, they were tr trying to cross the streets, they were getting hit by cars. So basically there's a, a, an old freeway going through the neighborhood, and it hasn't really uh, adapted much over, since it's become just like a you know, neighborhood uh, street. Um, and so there's things missing like crosswalks and the, the speed limits are ignored or uh, maybe too high. Uh, but basically it's not, it's not very safe for pedestrians. So I connected with some of the, the youth to see if like this was really happening or if it was just a rumor. And they were like, no, it's totally happening. Like, come out, we'll talk to you about it. And so uh, when I go out there and uh, I'm expecting like a couple people, uh, you know, they rallied <laughs> like two dozen people and I was just like blown away. It, that rarely happens, you know, and, and the people that came out, you know, it was, uh, it was mothers, it was children, it was teenagers. And I was just, I was like, wow, this is uh, really amazing that you know, their community cares so much that they would come out to support um, and let folks know that there's, there is an issue that needs to be addressed. So that was kind of my first experience getting to know uh, folks in the Korean community. And then I'm also interested in like social movements and political theory that kind of kind of addressing like, uh, well, why do people get involved in politics? Why uh, are there some folks less involved, you know? And I thought like they really, they really stood out to me in the neighborhood as folks that were, were willing to engage in civic engagement in a way that I wasn't seeing in other communities. So I thought, and doing the research and, and background on why this might be possible, maybe uh, there's some clues to, or to, uh, to inspire other communities, basically. I'm Deepika Shrestha Ross, and the film that I've done is called Momo America. So my film is really about the Nepali-American experience. It's the immigrant experience. And um, mainly because within the sort of big catch-all category of Asian-Americans and then South Asian-Americans, the Nepalis are sort of invisible. Nepal only opened its doors you know, to the outside world in the 50s. And then in the early 60s, there were uh, various US, I don't know, USA, different different organizations that came into Kathmandu and my parents became friendly with some of the Americans and um, then my father um, through his he was teaching at that time at, in a, a college in Kathmandu and then applied for a Fulbright and he got this Fulbright scholarship that allowed him to come and to get his PhD so he was the first of like a handful of Nepali students to ever come to the U.S. to um, study you know, for his Ph.D. And he ended up uh, first in Texas. So he came first by himself uh, and he was in Texas. And then um, he told his advisor that he was having a little trouble with the southern accent. And the next thing he knew, he was like enrolled at the University of Iowa because they said, you'd have no trouble there. <laughs> and so when my uh, mother, brother, and I came a year later, that's where we ended up in uh, Iowa City, in Iowa. And I was four years old, yeah. Experiences are, are a little complicated because we went back to Nepal. So we came when I was four, and then we went back when I was eight. 
and then we came back again when I was 11. So I remember the first four years uh, in the U.S. So we were in Iowa City and then we moved to Ohio. In those years, I knew I was different, but I didn't, it didn't, you know, hit me as anything, you know, that bothered me. And, um, but when we went back to Nepal, I did, even though we were going home technically, I did feel like out of place and with an American accent, I was trying to learn Nepali. School was very different. I was in a convent school. And so I was feeling very much out of place. And then when we came back to the US, I thought things would be so much better for me because this is what I remember being happy. And um, no, it wasn't. I was just really felt um, isolated, an outsider. And I was pretty much sort of exploring in my mind, getting out of Ohio and seeing what else was out there. And uh, so going to architecture school uh, at Cornell, that was like um, amazing, wonderful for me. I mean, being in with a lot of other kids my age were also passionate about that stuff. It was just, yeah, I felt I really was coming into my own. But it took a long time to, for me to process, you know, my feelings of um, all that. And, and I did always feel on the fringes of the Nepali American community. I think my daughter and the things that she was going through with her own identity, her father is uh, African-American. So the things she was going through and the classes she was taking, she went to NYU, she's an actor, um, really sort of got me thinking about stuff and I enjoyed sort of exploring these issues with her. And really is a weaving of both my personal story as well as a larger story of Nepali Americans, which I hope will resonate with even, you know, all immigrants and uh, Americans. So I, I use my personal story as well as um, family photographs and some VHS video that I had forgotten that we even had and that I actually took some of it <laughs> like 35 years ago and that's incorporated. It, so it, it goes um, from present to past and present and then I follow um, different it's not a single family or person, but I go to a few different locations in the United States to see how um, community is preserved and you know, sort of how it, it has evolved through the sort of conversations that people have around the kitchen table making momos, which are these dumplings that are filled with meat or vegetables. And they're just, all Nepalis just love momos. And, um, and it's just a, an, uh, an activity that gets even kids involved and it's an inter intergenerational activity in making them. And um, the, in the, the recipes are, you know, you could put inside whatever you want. And it has also evolved because they originally came from Tibet. And so when they came to Nepal centuries ago, they sort of modified some of the ingredients and the spices. I, I saw momos as an as a metaphor uh, for for us because you know inside we're all these messy ingredients but we wrap ourselves in a nice you know pretty wrapper to, to show to the world so I thought I would just bring all that together.
My name is Kyle Baker, and my film is called The Eighth Province. I've been doing a lot of research over the years on Basque music and cultural heritage. I did some work uh, in college, and then I worked at the Smithsonian Folklife Festival in Washington, D.C. Um, in, in 2016, where they brought a bunch of Basque people, both from Europe and from the diaspora, um, to the National Mall, where they would kind of uh, perform music in front of a huge audience day to day. So I kind of, I got connected with certain people at the Folklife Festival. When I got accepted into this program in Santa Cruz, you know, Bakersfield was kind of a lot closer than the Basque country. And I found out there was this big kind of vibrant community there. Uh, I think the Basque story um, is a fascinating one. You know, they're, they're kind of a minority in their own homeland in the Basque country. It's kind of nestled in between these big empires of Spain and France. Usually men came over to work as sheep herders. And, and from there, they kind of started building these communities, you know, in California and Arizona, Oregon, Montana. For, for this program specifically, it was one student per project, so, so we didn't have any help. So we spend the summer in between our first and second years doing most of the shooting, if not all of it. Um, so I was, I was in my car in between Santa Cruz, Bakersfield, and L.A. all summer. In a certain sense, you just kind of show up, you know, invited <laughs> by at least one person. Um, but for me, I was kind of lucky that um, a lot of Basques down in Bakersfield spend a lot of their time um, in a few different locations, but there tends to be a bunch of Basques in, in those places. So they have a lot of Basque communities around the United States have, have what they call um, cultural clubs. So it's just kind of these community centers where they can meet. And in my case, you know, one guy invited me down there and I kind of met the entire choir group that he sings with. And that was, that was my first day shooting in Bakersfield. I just kind of happened to meet uh, four of the five people who would later become kind of the central subjects of the film. I guess it was this learning process of not, not really romanticizing being Basque in my mind or, or, or the past, but, but realizing it's kind of this continuum, you know, this, this idea of, of a Basque identity is also an American identity, is also an identity as a sheep herder, like a lot of these people worked as. I hope people question our idea of immigrant communities and and kind of the history of immigration in in our country and in, a, in any country, I guess. Uh, when, when people think of the American West and maybe like the Old West that, that kind of Bakersfield brings up in a visual sense, I don't think many people think about Basques or, or Basque people wearing cowboy hats and herding sheep and things like that. So I hope this is a chance, and what I try to do in the film is kind of bring this iconography of the West and how we imagine the West and kind of complicate our, our kind of popular imaginary of, um, you know, who's here and who came here and when. So the Basques are just one, you know, of these hidden communities
is Jean Lieberman. I just finished the MFA program in social documentation and my thesis film is called Cultivando Saberes or Cultivating Knowledges. In many ways, in making the film, I'm sort of revisiting um, my first experiences in the region of, it's called Cauca, in southwestern Colombia, where I made the film um, and I lived for much of 2017. So I arrived there as an Isaac Wolf Human Rights Fellow, partnering with an organization called El Proceso de Comunidades Negras to do kind of human rights monitoring work about what were then the very new uh, peace accords between the FARC guerrilla and the Colombian government. After abolition, and many people also bought their freedom um, before abolition, and these communities gained access to, um, you know, large landowners have always controlled um, throughout history since colonization um, the majority of the land in Northern Cauca, but uh, black communities and families did control a lot of the land. And there's always been a very active struggle for freedom and for land rights. In, in Cauca is one of the yeah, kind of centers of that, that form of resistance in Colombia. And um, then in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, a variety of really largely global sort of agricultural reforms and changes and, and economic um, changes that favored industrial agriculture um, started to unfold. And especially in the 60s, the U.S., um, during the Cold War, the embargo on Cuba loses its main sugar producer and really turns to Colombia and especially the Cauca Valley for sugar. And so the large landholders essentially, um, through a series of different mechanisms, dispossessed um, these families that had been farming this land for generations and really concentrated the land is now mostly dedicated to industrial sugarcane production. Many of the actually reasons that people lost their land was because there were um, loan programs and sort of like seed substitution programs designed based on knowledge from the global north and from temperate climates that simply don't work. into a small filmmaking project when I was first living in Cauca where I proposed to a community of farmers that I was working with to make a zine. And it just very quickly became clear that something that would allow for oral storytelling rather than written storytelling was going to be much more useful and effective in that context. And so the teenagers kind of proposed, like, let's make a video. And I was like, I don't know how to do that, but okay, like, we can try. <laughs> and so I made, you know, a short educational film there with them and found that a really, really rewarding experience and wanted to get the skills to be able to really do justice to that kind of work. And so I wanted to do some kind of, you know, documentary film. And I do definitely want to continue with this kind of work. My name is Mahshid Modaris and my film is titled Sanctions on the Sky. In 2015, the UN has lifted several sanctions, especially the ones that jeopardize Iranians' health and safety. 
But after President Trump came to the office, the U.S. Uh, exited the nuclear deal. President Trump even imposed more sanctions on Iran and calling it maximum pressure. And now people are under a lot of pressure, obviously, financially and emotionally. And their health and safety is threatened uh, more than previous years. So I decided to make my MFA film about the effect of sanctions on Iranians and make it possible for people to be heard. Uh, I do hope that I can uh, make a change. Uh, of course, there are a lot going on right now around the world, in the U.S. and in Iran. And there are a lot, a lot of concerns that should be discussed. But my film is uh, only about the effect of U.S. sanctions on Iranian people. So my main goal is uh, to uh, make sure that my audience understand that people in Iran are badly affected by U.S. sanctions. And I chose uh, sanctions on civil aviation sector as an example. Uh, there are other factors involved, but uh, U.S. sanctions are uh, one of the main contributing factors on plane crashes in Iran. So far, there has been 30, 36 plane crashes in Iran uh, since um, during the past 40 years. Because of sanctions, Iran is not allowed to purchase uh, newly built airplanes and Iran is not allowed to purchase parts to repair the existing airplanes and some um, countries around the world don't allow Iran to land on their airports for refueling so that makes Iran Iranian airline to use a heavier fuel to be able to fly directly from one place to another place so that has been that uh, has been causing um, crashes, uh, and again there are other factors involved. But sanctions on civil aviation sector is one of the major factors. Uh, I was able to talk to several families, Iranian families, uh, but only two uh, families uh, agreed to participate in the film. The challenge was that Iranians who participated didn't want to be seen and they didn't want me to reveal their uh, names and uh, identity. Uh, so I had to just record the sounds uh, and their interviews and based on what I had, I added some videos just to make it more uh, influential. The main character of the film is a lady uh, whose husband passed away in one of airplane crashes and uh, when uh, this crash happened she was only 36 years old and she had two uh, sons one was 10 years old and the other was four and in the film we hear her story i also interviewed several other uh, iranians uh, just to show how much people are scared of flying what their concerns are I'm originally from Iran. Uh, now uh, I am an Iranian-American. I became a citizen years ago. Uh, I got my BFA in visual arts from Azad University in Tehran. Then I moved to California uh, and got my uh, MA in art history and visual culture. 
from San Jose State University. And after 10 years and raising my two daughters, I decided to go back to a school and study documentary making. This subject is uh, very important to me and to many Iranians. Uh, it's very important to me to make sure that my audience know how these sanctions are affecting people of Iran. I truly believe in uh, documentary making as a very powerful tool uh, for uh, discussing social, political, environmental, uh, and uh, um, any issues, any uh, issue that concerns uh, people. Many Iranians in Iran and around the world really care about Tehran-Washington relationship and people truly are looking forward to peace and friendship. I hope my film becomes an instrument to lead us toward this peace and friendship and lifting those sanctions that hurt civilians. So hi, my name is Melanie Ho, and the name of my film is Shangwanai, and that means to live here. I came into the program thinking that I would want it, I wanted to do something based off of like trauma surrounding the war in Vietnam and how that exists within um, like Vietnamese American families and how trauma is passed down perhaps from parents to children. I am Vietnamese. I'm not from, it's set in New Orleans, and I'm not from New Orleans, I'm actually from Florida. Uh, but I really wanted my film to be set somewhere in the South, because I think there's not enough media coming from the South, and like with, uh, featuring Southern identities, Southern voices. So that was uh, a really important factor of mine. The film has lingerings of haunting from the war in Vietnam and from displacement from moving from one home to another. But rather than focusing on direct familial relationships, it's more focused on how these hauntings are seen through labor and how labor connects folks to each other and folks to land and folks to sea. Uh, and it follows an elderly couple that are farming on land and then a shrimper who goes out to sea to shrimp. So I did uh, research for the year prior going um, off to filming over the summer and while I was doing research, uh, I found out that there was a large Vietnamese Catholic community in New Orleans. And then I was researching that and right across the street from the largest uh, Vietnamese Catholic church there, there's a, there's a little cooperative called Veggie Farms Cooperative. And I reached out to the person who organizes that when I was in New Orleans over the summer. So I was able to get in touch with like some farmers there. And then um, I, I made a trip there to New Orleans with my family for the first time, uh, the spring break prior to filming. So spring break of last year. I do, or anything that I create, it has some part of my identity in it. So this one is like very so much, uh, very much so my Vietnamese identity. And I got to spend like a lot of time just observing each of these people. I was on the boat for uh, maybe a little less than a week, but I it was like constantly on a boat. Um, and then I was able to visit the farm like multiple times and just like spend hours each day with them where I don't know if I can explain like the specifics of their personality, but there's just like a rhythm to their bodies that I was really drawn to.
and it's much less like getting to know their specific stories and more so understanding how they live day to day. Like my dad used to own a convenience store as well here in uh, Jacksonville and like all throughout middle school I would have to work there every single day um, <laughs> at the cash register. I come from um, first generation low-income family. I went to Princeton and it was worlds apart from what I'm used to. When I was an undergrad, I wasn't, I wasn't at all good at sciences. <laughs> um, and I found that filmmaking was something that like really drew my interest, both because it helps me communicate with people, um, but also because I think it's like a point of reflection for myself as well. I think this film has allowed me to explore environmental racism, which is something that I'm not too, I wasn't too familiar with. And it's something that I would want to continue exploring as well. So Sock Dog really is a unique, I think, kind of place to develop oneself as a filmmaker with in a really supportive environment that encourages interdisciplinary inquiry and research. And yeah, and it really, you know, that's what I hoped it would be coming in and it absolutely has been. It has just been absolutely fantastic. I've gotten so much support and inspiration from all of them. They have been like the bedrock of my experience. Obviously, I'm like the age of the parents of the uh, other students uh, in my cohort, and um, and they're they're great. They don't you know let that bother them, and I really get inspired by them actually. You know, in addition. I mean, the, the professors, like what they, they're doing is amazing too, but you know, when I think of young people um, in their 20s and 30s uh, exploring these ideas that are really important and relevant today that I wish I had been thinking about when I was their age, it just is very inspiring to me and they teach me things every day. And I think I, I chose the, the Santa Cruz, the MFA. I wanted to uh, really dig into the theory of, of filmmaking. When I was uh, looking for uh, different universities, uh, and I was searching uh, for different schools, I learned about uh, the documentary Redneck Muslim by Jennifer Taylor. And I did some research about her and uh, I came to social document documentation program because of her. Uh, UCSC FDM program was the only program that I applied for. And I am very happy that I made that choice. Every single person, professors, staff, students have been very kind and very helpful. When I heard of this program, I kind of ended up looking on Google Maps, uh, like Google Earth at Santa Cruz and it looked like this idyllic fresh air, fresh forest, ocean, mountainous place. Um, so I think as much as the program itself, uh, Google, Google Earth drew me to Santa Cruz. 
I'm interested in film, I'm interested in documentary, and I really like that they have like social justice and like people's stories and issues at the center of their work. Not just creating films to create films, but really creating like meaningful and impactful films. My cohort, we're made of like really amazing people. And I think just like the feedback that I would constantly be getting from them, from like showing my footage or even at the beginning process of like sharing my ideas, just like the way that they helped me brainstorm was something that I don't think this film would have become what it is without their thoughts and the care that they've given me. I'm still figuring out exact next steps um, for the film. I think, you know, we're all kind of struggling with the fact that film festivals are, you know, in some cases kind of postponed or they're all moving online and just figuring out exactly what that looks like. Just meeting um, Isaac Julian this year, who does like multi-screen work, um, documentary and fiction and uh, everything. <laughs> Thinking outside what uh, traditional documentary is, yeah, I've been working with Isaac Julian and to kind of develop like a, a two-screen version of um, Far From Kazuli as well. It's a bit more experimental. I'm applying to some film festivals with this short film. I'm not sure if those will be online only or if eventually in the fall, we, you know, film festivals will be in person again. As given the advice to just keep on working, distributing the film, like either submitting to film festivals every day or trying to send emails to folks to get it into classrooms. Uh, that's my goal to continue my career as a, a documentary maker. But all of our cohort films, they're like amazing. I'm really excited to watch everyone. <laughs>